This morning, I wanna, I wanna preach a sermon out of the book of Job. And we're gonna do our best here to go from Job 1 to Job 42 in 40 minutes. And I've entitled my message this morning, The Goal of Suffering. A number of people in our church as of late in the last few months and for some time are in the midst of suffering. And uh, it's weighed heavily on me as we minister to them, pray for them, encourage them. And, and I thought we'd, I'd share, dive into this book, which lays out one who suffered. The book of Job is one of the five books in the Old Testament called the wisdom books. When you open your Bible to the table of contents, which by the way is not a sin, you can do that if you're unsure where the book is. No one will judge you. When you open that up and look at the table of contents right there in the middle in the Old Testament, you see Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Psalm of Solomon. All these books are, are beautiful expressions of poetry. You see the trees clap their hands, hills sing for joy, God's enemies will melt like wax. God himself rides in the clouds. These books are filled with poetry. You read the, the book of Psalms and you see them filled with love and the fullness of God. And yet in the Song of Solomon is a, a celebration of the relationship between husband and wife. Proverbs is a book full of practical wisdom and advice for living in this world. And Ecclesiastes brings us low to consider the, the intricacies of some of life's most difficult problems. And then we come to the book of Job. Some have said that Job is a literary masterpiece from beginning to end. You might, if you're not familiar with church or even the Bible, turn to the book of Job and think that it's talking about employment. It's pronounced Job, not Job. It's not primarily about work, but it most definitely affects your work. Job is a firecracker of a book. It's an incredibly honest book. It's a book that knows what people actually say and think. It's not just a book of what people say in church. It's a book that describes and lays out for us what people say behind closed doors and whispers. It's a book that knows what we say in tears and deep pain. And if you listen carefully, if you read it carefully, it'll affect you deeply. It will trouble you. It will unsettle you. But in the end, it will comfort you. We will suffer. We are promised from the Lord Jesus in John 16 that in this world we'll have tribulation, but take heart because he has overcome the world. As I read through the book of Job this week, I realized I, I would struggle to read this book if I didn't know Jesus. It would be difficult. Well, this morning we're gonna take a brisk walk through the book of Job, and there's three things I want you to see as we walk. I want you to see the man of suffering, the pain of suffering, and the goal of suffering. I would most definitely prefer that you would read the book than just memorize the outline, but I I hope that these handles will give you a greater understanding of what the book talks about and will bring depth to your study as you study God's word. 
Before we begin, would you join me in prayer? Father, we come before your throne this morning. We come with songs of praise, songs of hope, of joy, of who you are and what you've done for us. Father, now as we come to your word in the book of Job, we ask that you would give us understanding. I pray for those this morning that are in the midst of suffering, that they would see you. They would hear from you this morning. God, give us insight as we look into your word. I pray that you would speak this morning. The words that people hear are from you. That you would use my words, feeble as they may, that you would be glorified in all of this. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. First, I wanna see the man of suffering. If you haven't already, turned to the book of Job. In chapter one, the book begins with one of the main characters, Job. It says in verse one, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This is the story of a human being, a man with flesh and blood, a man with a wife, kids, livestock, houses, a job. He is real, and this story is real. It's not a fairy tale. This really happened. We do not know exactly where Uz was, probably in the land of Edom, just to the east of the promised land. We learn something about this character, though. The author says that he was blameless, which tells us of his, his genuineness, his authenticity. Doesn't mean he was sinless. There's only one man that can say that. But he is upright, he says, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And with Job, what you see is what you get. As the story unfolds for us, you might begin to think that Job is trying to hide something. We live in this world and we begin to question, is this guy really this squeaky clean? But I want you to remember as you read through what the author says here in the first few verses, that he is blameless. Says that he fears God, meaning that he has a holy reverence for God. He knew God and respected his involvement in his life. It says he, he turns away from evil. When he sins, because he does, he confesses it and repents from it. He turns away. His life is a life lived on a path towards God and not towards the world. Job wasn't perfect, but as you read this book, this is a man that you should emulate yourself after in the midst of suffering. He's a genuine believer. Not long into chapter one, we get to step into the presence of God and Satan is there also. And he is allowed by God to bring incredible suffering to Job. In one single day, Job loses everything. The end of chapter one recounts that in a number of hours, Job loses his livestock, all of his oxen, 500 of them, 500 donkeys, the sheep, equaling 7,000, 3,000 camels, and a large amount of servants who had taken care of these animals. And even if he had just a moment to grieve the loss, another servant rushes in to tell him that all 10 of his children are dead also. Seven sons and three daughters. The three daughters are presumably unmarried since there's no mention of their husbands. And so what we have here is a man in the prime of his life, perhaps in his mid-40s, with three unmarried daughters, perhaps in her late teens, early 20s. We do not know if his sons are married or not, but they're successful, it seems. 
I'm sure as much as Job as they're meeting in his oldest son's home. But at this point, the suffering's not done for Job because we come to chapter two and Satan has permission again from God to bring horrible physical suffering to Job. And in verse seven, Job is struck with a loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. It's uncertain what the disease is. They don't explain it to us. Guesses range from melanoma to leprosy. Job is in serious physical pain. There's a distinction between what a person has and what a person is. What a person is is closer to the person's heart than what he has. I'm attached to what I have, whether it's my stuff or the people in my life, and it hurts when those things are taken away. But this doesn't hurt as much or as deeply when who I am is taken away. And Job has his self stripped away. He is a shell of a person now. And what is Job's response to this suffering? At the end of chapter one, it says, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And when his wife sees the suffering of her husband in chapter two, she talks. The only time that she talks in this book. And her advice for him, it's not good. She says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. She's a peach. Now, before we go too long in chastising her, she also lost seven sons and three daughters and all that they had. But her response is nothing like Job's. And Job, the blameless, the upright man, responds to her. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. What Job teaches us with this response is that the glory of God is more important than our comfort. What is our response? Do we only accept good and not evil? What happens when bad things happen in our lives? Do we respond like Job or his wife? In all of this, Job did not sin. As I read and reread this account of Job this week, I began to cringe at the suffering that he endured. I haven't experienced the same level of suffering that Job has, and yet in, in my way, my puny suffering, I have sinned more than I'd like to mention. This challenges me, it humbles me. What would Job think if he perused my Facebook feed this month? the suffering that my Facebook friends have endured. Oh man, my hot water heater went out. It's going to cost me more than I expected. Or I can't believe it took me two hours to drive home from Bellevue this morning. This traffic is horrible. Or I lost my iPhone. Man, what a horrible week. First world problems. American suffering. Do we understand suffering? Do I understand suffering? A few years ago, I was in Hopeman, Scotland, filling the pulpit at a small Baptist church. Hopeman is a tiny village at the northern part of Scotland, right on the coast of the North Sea. The village was established in the early 1700s as a fishing village. When I arrived, I was brought to my host home of a sweet older lady who welcomed me, asked if I was ready for some tea. 
I'm a coffee guy, but I'm in Scotland, you drink tea. I would spend the next four days at her house. She was an incredible lady. As the days passed, I heard how she came to know Jesus Christ when her father committed suicide and her sister and brother-in-law shared the gospel with her. On the second to last day, I was finishing up breakfast and the conversation with her, and as I walked out of the dining room, I noticed a, a letter, a framed letter on the wall, and it had a seal at the top which said Buckingham Palace. So it caught my eye. I naturally asked, what is this? It looked handwritten, actually. It was a letter from King George, dated from 1918. I was a little shocked and somewhat in awe of what I was seeing and asked why she would have a, a letter from King George and asked if I would read it. I actually took a picture of it. This is what it read. The queen joins in welcoming you on your release from the miseries and hardships that you have endured with so much patience and courage. During these many months of trial, the early rescue of the gallant officers and men from the cruelties of, of their captivity has been uppermost in our thoughts. We're thankful that this longed-for day has arrived and that back in the old country, you and with he, able once more to enjoy the happiness of a home and to see good days among those who anxiously look for your return. Signed, George R.I. See, her husband was captured in World War I. And this letter signified that he was found, released. He was coming home coming home to his wife and their kids. And in the midst of her relaying the story, she finished, and by that point, she was weeping of all the suffering that her husband had endured. But not only him, herself and her kids. She said that she was thankful for what the Lord had done and through this trial, what God was preparing for her. In the midst of her talking, her daughter, who was also there, chimed in to reaffirm the sovereignty of God and how he works in their lives. She said that God has never left us even when we suffered. They proceeded to tell me what God allowed next in their life. If you remember at the beginning, I described Hopin as a, as a fishing village. So most people that lived there were connected to the fishing industry. Well, her husband and two sons were fishermen and would go out for weeks at a time. In the fall of 1976, close to when he would retire, on a Sunday, they were to return from a three-week trip, but they didn't come home into port when they were supposed to. The afternoon turned into evening, and so the rest of the family went to church as normal. About halfway through the sermon, someone from the port came in to find the family and let them know that they hadn't heard from the boat in over 48 hours. The family finished the service, praying for them, their safe return, and went home. She recalled to me that there had been weeks in the past where they'd been a day or two late, but this time was different. There was a rescue ship sent out to find them to no avail. Two weeks went by with no word. By the end of the third week, they officially called off the search. 46 men had lost their lives. Three of them were her husband and two sons. She recalled to me that she would recite the beginning of the verses of Psalm 22, which read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from the words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, you have no rest. But you, you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you restored them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. She would suffer much in her life. But as we talked and found out more about her family and what God had done, I could see in her eyes and hear in her voice of what God had changed in her life. 
the suffering wasn't wasted. And she ended the conversation by saying, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. So we've looked at the man of suffering. Next, I want to see the pain of suffering. As you come to Job chapter three, you see Job is in deep suffering. And you begin to see a glimpse of the darkness that now is his life. Job laments, he's grieving, he has suffered loss. Put yourself in his position. The years that he worked to build, the sacrifice for his business, the hours that he put in supplying for his family, developing land, acquiring livestock, building the barns and the buildings, he has scars of well-worn hands and a slumped back from all the, the hours and days of hard labor, but he's happy. And kids, he has kids. He remembers the day when his firstborn son comes, the cry of joy from his wife when the heir for their family comes to the world. They didn't have an ultrasound machine to, to, to show them what they're expecting. Instead, they wait and they wait and they wait to see if the Lord would bless them with a son, someone to carry on the name, someone who would support them in their old age, someone who would be there to work when they couldn't, a son for Job to lift the tools to feed the animals, a son to bury him when he would die. And God brought him a son, and he brought him another, and another, and another, until he had seven sons. But the blessings don't stop there because God also gave them daughters. And what a joy it must have been for the wife to have daughters, right? In a house full of sons, to have daughters. And he has a little girl, but not just one, he has three girls. It's a blessing to have daughters. I know. Their smiles radiate the home. Their little bobbing heads as they dance around the house with pigtails, dresses, pink, Lots of pink. And the house full of men, there's finally color for Job. There's joy and there's laughter. And his wife, they look at each other and they're blessed. They're full, not just moderately, not, not just a little, but brimming, over full, overfulling. Ten kids. Ten kids to, to watch grow right in front of them. Job loves his life and his wife and his kids and his business. He loves his kids so much he'll do anything for them. When, he was, when they were born, he was there. He was there when they first fell, when they couldn't sleep at night. He would give anything for them. In fact, in the first chapter, it says he would go and offer burnt offerings on their behalf because he says to himself, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And so Job goes and offers sacrifices for the sin of his kids. He thinks about them continually. And then the day comes. That day. In a flash. And they're gone. His work is gone. His livestock wiped out by terrorists and natural disasters. And his kids, all 10 of them, they're gone. And we think 
we begin to wonder, could this man deal with any more disaster in his life? And then he's struck down with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And as we come to chapter three, he's sitting now on top of a heap of what used to be his life. Scraping off the pain of loss. We see the loneliness of Job. His wife leaves a scene. She can't deal with all that's happened. And as you begin Job 3, you hear the loneliness. Job is speaking in chapter 3 to no one in particular. He's not talking with his friends who just came into the scene. He's not speaking with God or to him. He's just talking with himself. I'm sure his friends can overhear. I'm positive God hears. But chapter 3 deepens our understanding of suffering. In verse 1, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born in the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me or the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. Verse 16. Or why was I not hidden as stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? Verse 20. Why is light given to me who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not and dig for it more than for hidden treasures? Verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. And I realized as I read through Job 3 that there are many churches in our area, in our country, in our world that wouldn't dare preach on Job 3. They wouldn't dare read Job 3 in a gathering. They wouldn't expound on the turmoil in Job's life because there's a happy-go-lucky type of Christianity out there. You don't talk about that. We don't want to talk about suffering. Folks, I compelled to preach this message. We need this. There are churches that say we don't need to have hard times in our life. But I want to say this morning that God brings these times into our life. And he's given us a gift with the book of Job. All 42 chapters of it. We need the book of Job. Because you need your best theology when you're in the midst of darkness. You ever wonder why the book of Job is 42 chapters long? It's a long book. Aren't you thankful I'm not preaching every word of it this morning? I am too. Job is 42 chapters long because like grief and pain and suffering, 
It's long and slow-paced. There is no quick fix to suffering. There is no instant work through for grief. And we've had times in our life, in our family, where we have a loss of a loved one or a death of a dream. It's not a quick fix. It's not an instant clearing. It takes time. This is why Job is 42 chapters long. And I want to lead our church through times of rejoicing, most definitely. But I also realize that there are many times in our church where I need to lead us through pain and suffering. And I, as a human, know that there is a struggle when suffering comes. It's never short. It's never easy. And the natural response, the natural question for us as humans when suffering comes is, why? Do you hear Job's questions in chapter 3, verse 11? Why did I not die at birth? Verse 12, why did the knees receive me? Verse 16, why was I not hidden, a stillborn child? Why, God, why is this happening? Why is it happening to me? Why is it happening to them? Why is it happening now? Why? And I've sat across from people who are struggling through pain and suffering their life, and they ask the why question. And our job as Christians, our job as, as believers, as counselors, is to listen and to give hope. But we are not called to answer the questions of why. And this is where Job's friends go terribly wrong. I have news for us this morning. We're not God. We can't answer this why question. You can't answer it, so don't. And in Job's life, just when you think he's had enough, the loss of his family, his stuff, and now his health, enter his friends. Tweedledee, Tweedledum, and Tweedledumber. And they come to comfort him. This is where the book of Job really expands, where the large chunk of what is communicated, starting in chapter 4 all the way through chapter 37, it's a dialogue with Job and his supposed friends. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in it this morning. This section is poetry, heavy poetry, beautiful poetry. It's challenging to read and understand. It's, it's hard in some ways. I'm not well-versed in poetry. The extent of my poetry is liar, liar, pants on fire. That's about it. So I need help as I look through and read. And these chapters, though, throughout it, you have a back and forth between Job and his friends, primarily centered around trying to answer this why question. And if you've been there, you know this question comes. And in suffering, we believe that the only way we will receive relief is to have answer to the why question. We're convinced of it, in fact. Francis Anderson, in his magnificent little commentary in the book of Job, compares how human beings view suffering with the biblical view. This is what he writes. Men seek an explanation of suffering and cause and effect. 
They look backwards for a connection between prior sin and present suffering. The Bible looks forward in hope and seeks explanations. Not so much in origins as in goals. The purpose of suffering is seen not in its cause, but its result. When you are faced with suffering, when you come to someone who's suffering, we need to look forward to what God will do through the suffering. It's not our job to answer the why questions. You will never have the answer. Listen, church, Job never gets the answer to his why questions. And when you enter into suffering, remind yourself as best as you can to be satisfied in not getting the answers to your questions. We need to learn to be comfortable in mystery, to be comfortable in ministry, mystery. God knows and we don't. And that should be enough. And where you look during suffering makes all the difference, whether you waste your suffering or you grow through your suffering. Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, and I want to tell you, if you get any other book in the next month, buy this book. Tim Keller, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, has a good quote for us this morning. He rightly says, the stakes are high here. Suffering with with." will either leave you a much better person or, or a much worse one than you before. Trials and troubles in life, which are inevitable, will either make you or break you. But either way, you will not remain the same. Suffering will either make you or break you. And he's right, you will not remain the same. Suffering doesn't automatically improve your life, but through the furnace that we go through, if we're obedient to God's word and faithful to him, we'll become more like Jesus Christ through it. So we've seen the man of suffering and the pain of suffering. Last, I want you to see the goal of suffering. Maybe you've asked this question before in the past. I know I did in the midst of preparation, but what is the point of suffering? It's a good question, isn't it? I'm going to answer it as best I can. Through the book of Job, the goal of suffering is that we get God. We get God. In Job chapters 38 through 42, it's the longest discourse of God. In Job's discussion with his friends throughout the middle section of the book, he ultimately has come to find fault with God. And Job's friends, well, they have no category for innocent suffering. Job's suffering was not a result of sin, but in his suffering, Job sinned by finding fault in God. And what Job needed was his view of God expanded and widened so that he could see more fully the sovereignty of God. And in chapter 38, God takes Job on a walk through creation, a tour. Job needs his knowledge of God expanded and his understanding of himself lowered. Rather than answering Job's question of why, God reveals himself. God is saying to Job, you're unhappy with me. You have questions. You want answers. 
But in your questions, Job, you're assuming that you know more than you really do. So let me ask you some questions. And all this, God never expects Job to be infinite, but he does expect that he knows that he is finite. God begins by saying, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? God says, I've always been here, Job. Where were you when the world was created? Who assembled the earth? Who, who measured it? Did you, Job? Do you tell the ocean waves to stop? Do you give orders to the morning for dawn to show its place? Have you seen the gates of death, Job? God informs Job, I am infinitely big and you are incredibly small. God is beyond our understanding. One day we will see God and we will know him, but he will still be infinite and we will still be finite. Then God takes Job on a tour through the zoo. You guys like the zoo, don't you? And he asks, can you hunt the prey for the lion or, or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Job, can you take care of the lions? Will you provide for them or the raven? How about them? Job, have you considered the mountain goat? Job, have you considered wild donkeys? And then he throws one out. Have you considered the ostrich? And at this point, you're thinking as a reader, what does this have to do with suffering? Wild donkeys? Have I considered wild donkeys? Not this week, no. He walks through the zoo, the animals, all that he's created. And when we see in this, we see the grace of God. God is bringing Job through all of creation, throughout the world, and the magnificence of what he has done, all the animals that he has created and then sustains. And he says to him, Job, look, I have created all of this, and I am in control of all of this. And in light of what God says to Job, Job, he says to him, Job, how can you question me? How can you challenge me? How can you find fault with the Almighty? And in chapter 40, verse 4, Job answers, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job quiets himself. But God isn't finished. God continues through chapter 40 and 41, and, and after this, God makes a final statement to an embarrassed Job. And he responds in 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered 
what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the meaning of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And in the end, Job only wants God. Job forgets his questions. He never gets the answers. He never understands what happens in heaven in chapter one. He never has his his answers to the why questions because in the end, Job gets God. And the goal of suffering is that we would know and value and love God more. We would get God. And I learned something this week. The book of Job is not about suffering. The book of Job is about God. As you read and journey through the book of Job, you feel more human, more real. You begin to understand the struggle of life on this planet. And then when you come to the end, you get to see God. And as we come to the end of the book of Job, it points to the only one, the only one who would be an innocent sufferer. Sin does have consequences and someone truly innocent must suffer. Someone innocent must perish. The great mystery of this life is not why we suffer, but why would a sinless one, the son of God, suffer for us on the cross? He dies in our place. Charles Spurgeon said, while others are congratulating themselves, I have to sit humbly at the foot of the cross and marvel that I am saved at all. Christ suffered for me. He died for me. D.A. Carson in his book, How Long, O Lord, writes, In the darkest night of the soul, Christians have something to hold on to that Job never knew. We know Christ crucified. Christians have learned that when there seems to be no other evidence of God's love, they cannot escape the cross. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32. When we suffer, there will sometimes be mystery. Will there also be faith? Yes. If our attention is focused more on the cross and on the God of the cross than on the suffering itself. At the end of J.R. Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, we have Sam. Have you guys read the book? Watched the movie? After the ring is destroyed, Sam is there and he's resting, and Sam believes that at this point, like everyone else, that Gandalf is dead. And after sleeping for some time, he comes back to consciousness and Gandalf is standing right before him, robed in white, his face glistening in the sunlight. And this is what Tolkien writes. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? But Sam lay back and stared with an open mouth and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought... 
I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? There are many in our lives, maybe you sitting here this morning, right now you're in the midst of darkness, of suffering. It's been a dark and painful season. And the suffering seems to continue. Life is dark, life is hard. You do not see and understand what's next. And I realize that there are some tears that only the Lord Jesus will wipe away. Realize that your suffering is not wasted. There will come a day when everything sad will come untrue. C.S. Lewis, another author that I appreciate who suffered much in this life, has some hope for us. He says, some mortals say of some temporal suffering that no future bliss can make up for that, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. As believers, we will see his glory. We will get God. And all of our suffering will eventually turn into joy. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we come before your throne again this morning. And we know the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. But I believe it's one of the most profound and comforting verses in all of Scripture. Lord Jesus, aching and compassionate tears, crying outside of Lazarus' tomb, is one of the greatest showers that ever fell upon the face of the earth. You knew that within a matter of moments, your friend would breathe again, would walk again, and you would embrace and enjoy his company again, and yet you wept outside of the tomb in the presence of death, in the presence of suffering. It is spoken by those around you. See how, see how he loved him. And you love us with the same tenderness and the same passion. I'm so thankful to know you as a tender-hearted Savior, one who comforts us in a variety of suffering with loss of life, loss of health, the death of dreams and longings, the end of once was and will never be. And perhaps the tears that you cried outside of Lazarus' tomb were there because you knew that Lazarus would go through this whole dying process again. Such is the hatred of suffering and death. Today I'm thankful to know you as the resurrection and the life. Your death was the death of death itself, the last enemy. And because of your resurrection, we can sing in advance of resurrection, O oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We realize that death is now working backwards with a day in view when all things will be made new, where everything sad will come untrue. 
We praise you. We exalt you. And we rest in you. I pray this all in your grave, robbing name. Amen.